Hi, hello. This is John Krasinski, Pittsburgh Soccer Now. Uh, this is our latest edition of Sounding Off on Soccer podcast. Uh, with me today, special guest, Mike DeCourcy. Mike is a fellow Point Park alum. Uh, I, of course, I'm a Point Park alum. I graduated in 1988. I'm sorry, 1992. That's when I got there in 88. Uh, Mike, uh, you graduated maybe a year or two before me, I think, right? Yeah, one or two. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we, uh, we're both proud pioneers and, uh, we both have gotten into the world of sports journalism. You obviously have a cherished, um, you know, well, um, uh, you've accomplished a lot as a sports writer. Uh, you're currently the, the college basketball columnist and, uh, uh, writer for, uh, the sporting news, but you don't just cover college basketball. You've gotten into soccer over the over the course of you know your career, and uh, you've done a lot in, in your career. Um, but just so our listeners, some who know you, some who don't know you, um, you know, you started in Pittsburgh with papers here, and then uh, you moved on to Memphis and Cincinnati. Um, you've been covering, especially college basketball um, and other sports, for over thirty five years, and um, you've been to thirty two Final Fours. I know you've I've, I've followed you know you. Uh, really, really enjoy your coverage. Um, so it, it's definitely one of my favorite uh, college basketball writers. And uh, you're a member of the United States uh, Basketball Writers Hall of Fame and a studio analyst on the Big Ten Network uh, and the NCAA Tournament Bracket Analyst for Fox Sports. And so, but what I'm excited to talk to you about today it, with the sporting news, um, again, the newspaper uh, publication I've always uh, had to have in my wheelhouse, um, the sporting news. Um, you, you, you do some writing on soccer. Yeah. Um, it started, uh, it started in 2013, um, when, uh, we had been recently purchased by perform, uh, which eventually became the zone and then perform split off from them, but they had, they owned goal at the time. So there was a soccer interest there. And uh, when the U.S. played Mexico in Columbus, I was living in Cincinnati at the time. So I just said, hey, if, if you don't mind, I, I can drive up and I can do a column off the game. And they said, sure, uh, that, that'd be nice. And Ivis Galarsep was working for goal at the time. So he and I uh, talked about uh, what to write about. That was the night that the United States clinched their berth with another dose of zero uh, victory over Mexico. Uh, at, at, at what at Old Crew Stadium. Uh, and so that was my first uh, in, uh, endeavor into covering soccer. Um, I had I had written uh, almost exclusively exclusively about college basketball for my first 13 years at Sporting News. I, I delved into a couple of things that were uh, like uh, there was an NFL playoff game in Indianapolis, uh, NFC champ, AFC championship game. And Hey, go do that. Some, some NFL games, that sort of thing, but it'd been mostly college basketball, but gradually over the last decade or so more, really more about the last six or seven years. Um, college basketball has been the main thing from November, October, November, th obviously through the end of March, but they've wanted me to do more outside so that started with that. And then they came to me uh, before Brazil 2014 and they said, hey, would you want to go? And I like, wow, that was like if my first thought was, man, that's a lot of time away from home. I'd done a couple of Olympics and I asked my wife if it was OK. She said it was OK. So I got a chance to be in Brazil, John. It was the most amazing experience that uh, I was I was in Sao Paulo for 16 days. The, the way that 
Brazil is so stretched out and the mm-hmm. way that the, there wasn't much nearby. So I stayed in Sao Paulo the entire time. That's where the U.S. was based. There were four group stage games at Sao Paulo during my time there. But the, the beauty of that was that um, that the, the opener, Brazil versus Croatia, was there. So I got a chance to be there for the opening game. It was the most amazing experience I've had as a, as a sports journalist to be able to to be in that stadium. I mean, I'm not like You've been the 32 final fours. Yeah. I mean, that, I was at Leitner's shot and I got to do yeah. when I was covering the Olympics in 92, I got to be in a scrum interviewing Nelson Mandela. I don't know if you call it a scrum when you're talking to Nelson Mandela, maybe when you're talking to like Jim Leland, it's a scrum, right. but when you're talking to Nelson Mandela, we got to find a better word, but like that night, it was just yeah. magical. And you know, John, my, my background in soccer, it, it, it it's kind of interesting. I mean, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 70s. Yeah. So it started with baseball, then football. I fell in love with basketball. Soccer, like soccer was something you said you hated. Even if like you never saw it, you said you hated it because that's what everybody else did. And I was in that place for 30 years. Oh, I, I really, really don't care. You know, and I had limited exposure to the game. The closest I came to it was uh uh, my, my sister spent uh, 73, 74 in England, at, at, like doing a, a semester abroad or whatever. And she brought me back a World Cup magazine uh, like I, that didn't really register. Uh, and then when the Pittsburgh Spirit were playing, now nah, I, I enjoyed that. And we used to go to games and I went to a game one time with my wife and uh, I think it was uh, Len Komorowski, who's now like the president of the Cavaliers or something. Yes, yes. At, at, he's done just great. Uh, was the PR guy for the for the Spirit then, sure. and asked me to play in a media game. I had never played soccer in my life. I scored the only goal. Oh my! So I'm never you know. So I retired with a 100% strike rate. That's so, was, that's. That's that was about great. As, a good a Pittsburgh soccer story we're going to get um, <laughs> someone in the Pittsburgh media or had at one time been a part of the Pittsburgh media, but just a Pittsburgh, a fun Pittsburgh soccer story. I, I love that. That's uh, so who, who had the assist? Was it was it Mark Madden back in the day? Gosh, I can't remember. I know, but, across, but it was like a cross that came right. I was right in front of goal. I, I stretched out my left leg, went off my left foot into the goal. It was, uh, it was, and I, and I celebrated, man, but, you know, from it, what, where I really got into the game was in the 90 world cup was the first world cup that was yeah. really put ESPN put a lot of 86 on, but it, I wasn't ready yet. And then 90 Turner made a big deal of the fact they were going to show all the games. And I said to myself, I mean, the whole world goes crazy for this. I've got to, I've got to give this a shot. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm going to watch a bunch of this and see how it goes. And it's what's interesting is that like years later, I'm reading articles saying the 90 World Cup was the worst of all time. Mm-hmm. And John, I was absolutely hooked. Wow. I just mm-hmm. I just fell head over heels for the sport. Um, I, I, I just I couldn't wait to see the next game. And, you know, back then there wasn't much to attach it to after that. So it really took until Fox Soccer Channel came on with uh, showing the Premier League and stuff and. Uh, and and that's when I was really to get able to get fully into it. Uh, so that it, it took a long process for me to be able to be fully integrated as someone who really loves soccer. Uh, but it, 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 in the end, I mean, it's, it's one of my, if, if not, I don't know if I can ever say it's over basketball, but if it's not one, it's one a, 
it's just a it's just a magnificent sport. I love everything about it. Well, and I think you're in the shoes of a lot of people that maybe are like my age and maybe older that do eventually get into soccer. I mean, even myself, I was like your basketball, baseball, football guy growing up. We always soccer was always there, but it was for me because I, I had played it a little bit and I played I had a lot of friends that played it. But it was there wasn't really until I got older when I, I truly, really appreciated the game. So I think that I can certainly relate to that. Um, but yeah, those, that was interesting because you look at those World Cups and, and it's all about, from my perspective, was the coverage. We just we we just didn't see the game. I mean, we had to watch ABC's Wide World of Sports back in 82. That's the year that I really got into the World Cup, partially because, you know, I, I some of my Polish and Italian heritage, some of that came up, like my relatives, like, oh, Italy and Poland are both in the, I think they made it both to the final four that year. And so there was some excitement there, but I mean, other than that, the ABC's coverage, there was very little. ESPN was just in its infancy. And I think you could, you know, 80, and then 86, I think NBC had the coverage, but it was, again, it was when it was on NBC, when can you get it on the weekends here and there, you know, that, that sort of thing. So uh, I think you're right. 1990 was definitely a breakthrough year. And for a couple of reasons, I think with United States television started getting into it because the U.S. team, we were going to be hosting in 94. I think there right. was definitely a level of excitement. But to hear you talk about 2014, I guess 14, um, and to have that experience, I think that's something that I think we are all really looking forward to for, I guess, yeah, four, four, it's hard to believe, four years from now um, when when we, we're, we're going to be hosting the World Cup. I mean, I, I can't wait. Yeah. You know, I have a funny story about that 82 World Cup. 40 years ago was the summer that I was the world's worst baseball writer. I, I always say that because I, was, I wasn't great at it. Uh, the writing was fine, uh, mm -hmm. but the baseball part I had a problem with. I didn't really get the job, but uh, and uh, I, was, I was doing that for the Tribune Review. So I was in Atlanta for the day of the final. And it was on fairly early here because I was there for a Sunday afternoon game, Pirates and Braves. And in the press lounge, the game was on. And so I sat down to watch it. Italy, and I can't remember who they played, but uh, Germany. I sat down to watch it. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm sitting there watching it. And a couple of guys from the TBS crew, cameramen or whatever, they come in, they see soccer on TV. No, 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 we don't do this in Atlanta, you know? So right. they went up. They, Turned it off. That was it. So that was that was soccer in America in my, you know, in my developmental years. And people now who, who complain about what we do and where we are and how we do it and all that. I'm like, you guys don't understand. We're like worlds ahead of where we were in the days when I was growing up and, and being formed as a sports journalist. For sure. I, I've had time in the last decade plus walking into a Pittsburgh establishment just trying to get, you know, love the injures, but, you know, trying to get somebody to, Hey, can you put this soccer game on? And, um, and then they start watching, Hey, this isn't that bad, you know, but <laughs> that conversation, it's just, sometimes it's tough, you know, but uh, Mike, um, you have, uh, you know, your, your career, you, you've covered a lot of college basketball. I, before we get into some of the things that you're covering right now, I know I wanted to talk about U S women's soccer team and maybe a little bit about the men too. Just your perspective uh, from, you know, from from your point of view in terms of the media coverage 
of soccer in general. We've, we've, we've touched on a little bit of the immense growth and, and what's out there, but still, does it feel like, you know, you're, you're in the Midwest, you know, I'm here in Pittsburgh. We're, you know, it, it just seems like it's, it's not consistent. Uh, I think some local, whether you have a, a MLS club or a USL club in different, uh, I guess it's just so segmented, right? I mean, it's, it's just so difficult to describe how soccer gets covered in the United States. Yeah, there are particular markets where they're doing a magnificent job. I look at Philadelphia with John Tannenwald uh, for the Inquirer and, and Daily News. He does a fantastic job. They do a great job of putting him in places to do a fantastic job. Uh, but he's a rarity at, in daily newspapers, unfortunately. They're, they're, you know, L.A. has Kevin Baxter. He does a great job as well. Uh, there are others across the country uh, at various places. I think KC uh, has generally covered uh, their, the you know, sporting KC really well. I can't speak for the uh, for the Cascadia area. I haven't really paid that much attention to how they do it. I would hope with the popularity of the Sounders, sure. the Timbers, that they do a good job. Uh, uh, OL Rain as well and uh, Portland storm. I hope they do a great job because it's so popular. I imagine they do there, but I haven't paid attention, but there's, it's too few and far between. I mean, uh, the daily newspapers still don't look at that as something that they need to cover all the time, uh, or that it's a priority. Uh, and I, I think that's unfortunate and it's led to a lot of people having to search elsewhere for soccer coverage. Uh, and, th- and they find it in good places. There's some wonderful uh, independent soccer journalists uh, doing a great job out there. Uh, Brian Sharetta does a great job. Uh, 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 obviously, Grant Wall does a fantastic job. And then you have the, the, the people at The Athletic uh, on both the men's and women's side are terrific. Uh, so there, there are people out there who are really good, uh, uh, but it, you have to seek it. it it's, it's not it's not in your paper all the time. It's not, you know, on on your paper's website all the time. I mean, the Washington Post is another that does a great job with Stephen Goff, but it's just too rare, unfortunately. Uh, and and, I, and you'd think that with the growth of the game and its popularity uh, it, that you would see a change in that attitude. But I don't think we really have uh, seen a, a general change in that in that approach uh, from coast to coast. Uh, and I, look, I understand why it would not be a priority for the Post-Gazette, for, in, in, uh, for instance, because, you know, their team is not a major league team. Uh, it's it, So I understand why it would not be a high priority there. But in places that have major league teams, whether it's in the NWSL or in MLS, I think it should be uh, something that's given more attention, more weight. And you and I, I mean, obviously from Pittsburgh, so you have some perspective this is a question I get asked more than anybody else. And I always have my answer for it, but what, from your perspective, what do you, what would you say to someone who says, Oh, Pittsburgh should have an MLS team. Yeah. You know, my feeling has always been like, I, I will say this from two sides. One, I, I've always thought that, you know, that I've never seen the interest there at that level. And I haven't lived there regularly. I've been back, back plenty, but I haven't lived there regularly for 30 years, nearly 30 years. But I never perceived the level to be that intense. However, I lived in Cincinnati right. for 18 years and we left in 2014 and FC Cincinnati was born as a club at the at the USL level, I think, in 2016 and immediately started selling out Nippert Stadium, which is a 35,000 seat college football stadium. 
I wouldn't have ever known that that interest was there. I had no idea. It has completely taken me by surprise. I used to go, there weren't that many soccer bars. I can tell you in 2002, um, when Brazil was playing Germany in the World Cup final, the local ABC affiliate didn't want to put the game on live. It was 7 a.m. It was going to cut out their paid religious programming. They didn't want to give that up. Right. Uh, but eventually enough people called and complained that they went ahead and put it on. Um, but the soccer bars in Cincinnati, there weren't very many. They were pretty small and they were very rarely filled. So I didn't anticipate that. So I can say that if you if you lit that fuse, maybe they would. But again, the difference with Cincinnati was that they got USL and they went bonkers day one. Um, and Pittsburgh's had USL for many years and that level of bonkers has never shown itself. Right. The first year, maybe Bethel Park Stadium had closer to 5,000 a game. And it was, there was that first year, first time excitement, but you're right. It's never, it's never really reached that level. And you're right. I was at a couple of those games in Cincinnati and there was just a fever pitch about it. Can't describe it. It was hard to come back here and describe that to people and to explain what was, what that atmosphere was like. It was, it was very special and yeah, they, they caught on to something and they, they turned it into something really special now having their, their own stadium and, and um, that sort of thing. But yeah, I, you know, then as far as media coverage goes, yeah, I mean, I, I I appreciate your your feedback because you know I, one of the things that I saw was this was an opportunity. Granted, our audience is a little different here in Pittsburgh, but there are diehard soccer fans out there who wanted more, and so it was like you know what, I've spent a lot of years doing you know different freelance writing and doing some different things. I've got a you know a career here, but there's a gap missing in terms of soccer coverage in Pittsburgh. So why not? just do something I really enjoy doing anyway. So, but it's, it's, and I feel like in the, in the last maybe seven to eight years or so it's, it's gotten better. Uh, but one thing is like being in a, in a press box with non-soccer writers covering soccer. I mean, this is all due respect to a lot of our colleagues and, but sometimes you, you, you I find myself in, in, I'm sure you were, when you were learning the game, probably found yourself. That's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Well, I covered in, when I was working for the press, I covered a Trinity high versus North Hills or somebody like that uh, WPL playoff game. And I went there knowing none of the rules. And I mean, I, it was like, like walking into a room where everybody was speaking French and like I took high school French. So, uh, so I know enough, like I might hear three words that I understand and that was basically what it was going to, to, to that cover that soccer game. Um, one of the things that I tell, try to tell people now is if you haven't followed soccer, that the cool thing about it is it's like be, getting to be six years old again, seven mm -hmm. years old. Like when I was learning about baseball with baseball cards and pirates and all that stuff. And eventually, like by the time I'm nine, I can name every National League lineup. You know, I mean. Falling in love with soccer gave me the chance to be that kid again. Now that's 20 years ago, but it still was a really cool experience. And so that's what I try to tell people uh, who haven't gotten into it is that it gives you that chance to learn from the ground up. And it's not, you know, it, 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 it's foreign to you, but if you pay attention, it doesn't take that long to pick up the rules 
you know, what's a corner kick, uh, you know, what's a foul and a free kick and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't take that long to learn the basics. Uh, and I, I was able, you know, by the end of that World Cup, I kind of had a pretty good idea of what, what everything was. I mean, there's still some nuances to the rules that even now uh, will vex me, but that's even true of basketball when I've covered, as I, you said, 32 Final Fours, and there's still a, a rule deep in the book that you're like, really? That's a rule? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and honestly, this is a good segue for, for what I wanted to talk to you about. You know, the World Cup always seems to be the years, the World Cup years seem to be when people start to get into it more, or they just say they have this sort of rule, like I only follow soccer when the World Cup is on, or that sort of thing. So we're, we're heading into this very unique World Cup year. Oh, my lights just went out. I don't know what happened there. Uh, but, but we're heading into this uh, un- unique uh, World Cup year where it's being played in Qatar late in the year, in the, obviously for, for climate purposes, uh, to play in, uh, in the wintertime versus in the summer in the Middle East. But we're, we're looking you know, from your perspective and mine, you know, we look at the U.S. men's national team as the primary story. And this is there's there's a lot of it. All right, we had a slight interruption there, but uh, we were talking about the U.S. Uh, men's national team heading into this World Cup. This week, there's been a bit of a buzz about a few things. One. Well, first of all, John Brooks, who really maybe the on paper, you know, in terms of his ability or what he can do as a defender. Uh, is is with, with, without a team, and uh, at least club team. And so there's been some buzz back and forth. Uh, Greg Berhalter, U.S. men's national team coach, has said that, you know, it would. he was hoping that Brooks would be with a team that plays a high line because the U.S. plays a high line defensively. We don't know what's going to happen with Brooks, but, I mean, I, I think a lot of us would like to see him on in that, you know, that group that gets selected to go to play in the World Cup. Um, what have you heard or what do you know about that situation? Well, I, you know, I know that um, if you go back to last September, he really, uh, you know, he was kind of an automatic starter with his experience and, and what was available. Uh, he would, but he, he really struggled. He did not play well at all uh, in the early qualifiers. And I don't know what happened after that I don't know whether it was just his play or whether something happened and I haven't been able to find anything out and neither have any of my colleagues. Uh, it, it's just been one of those mysteries. And so he has not been with the team since then. Right. And then of course, for a while he, th- that carried over to him not having a very good fall with his club either. I, I think the spring went a little better. And he seemed to come around some, but the fact that he can't find a team is problematic for him. I mean, you had Chris Richards just signed today uh, that uh, he's going to Crystal Palace and, and and you already, you know, he was injured in in the June games. uh, So he wasn't able to sort of establish a partnership now that Miles Robinson's out. Now there was a wide gap for him and, and he could have jumped right in there. Uh, but at least he's now going to be playing at a high level. If he's playing regularly, he'll be able to make a case uh, for jumping in to the starting lineup. I don't think there's any question Walker Zimmerman's going to be on the one side, uh, and then it's just a question of who who joins him. So, uh, you know, Brooks does Brooks have a chance to be that guy? I kind of think uh, that's a long way back from where he was last fall with the limited amount of time he would have to get there. But if, if he were able to get to a club, uh, where at a reasonable level where he could play regularly, 
I, I could certainly see him getting on the team and then being available if he's needed. Yeah. Fitness and, and everything else. I think he, he, he's a guy that he had, he's got a small window right now to get kind of get back on track. Um, hopefully for his case, you know, he does. And for, for the U S team's case, because this is still a relatively young team and to have some sort of experience, uh, where are they going to turn, turn to for experience? I mean, I don't see a lot of it and I, but they're very confident, you know, I mean, this is a very confident group and I guess that's a good thing, but, and speaking of confidence, Christian Pulisic today or yesterday, I believe just recently had a quote saying that, you know, we're there, we're there. And this is the same quote that Landon Donovan in 2002. And, and I think we all love to hear this. Uh, and Greg Berhalter said that uh, as well, you know, appreciate that Pulisic, they want to go there to win the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, that's what you say. If you're asking that question, um, then, then, then the answer is going to be that from any reasonable athlete. I mean, no one, no athlete uh, goes into a, uh, especially one who's as accomplished as he is. I mean, he's won, uh, he's won the FA Cup. He's won Champions League. He was an in, he was a, an essential contributor to the Champions League title in those two Real Madrid games. Uh, they don't get to the final without him, uh, and so he, he he's won big games. So he's not going to look at this and say. Oh, it'd be nice to get out of group. I mean, that's what we can say as observers or what the fans can say. Uh, but you, as the competitor, you can't say that. Now, you know, I, at the same time, I've never been one big on criticizing an honest answer. That's one of the things that we do in sports media now. You give us an honest answer, uh, even if it's kind of spun, uh, and then we rip you for it. And that's just not what I do. I mean, you're giving me the answer to the question. Now, if I'm interviewing you and you give me a lie, I'm not going to print it. Um, but I'm also not going to put it out there and say, look at this lie somebody told me. I mean, <laughs> I, no, I, I've not been a fan of this. I mean, there was a similar thing with Grant Williams in the NBA finals. He said, I thought we were the better team than Golden State. Okay. I mean, that's what you want him to believe. You want him to believe that they should have won the games. They didn't. Uh, and the Warriors get to keep the trophy. I mean, but I, so you want people to believe in themselves and believe in their team. Uh, realistically, they're not going to win it. I mean, not now. I mean, we'll see where we are in four years uh, with the tournament here and with those guys playing at big clubs and more good players coming up behind them. We'll see. But we know now that's not realistic. But you, de- you never know what's a realistic performance. I mean, who would have said Turkey in that 2002 year? Uh, when the U.S. made it to the uh, final eight, that Turkey was going to be in the semifinals and one win away from playing in the championship. So you never know. Uh, I I like his confidence in that regard. I I like his demeanor around the U.S. team. I I think he's, uh, I've been around them enough that um, he seems really attached to it and really a part of it. And it would be easy for him as someone who sold for a lot of money to go to Chelsea, who's played at the highest level, It'd be, it'd be easy for him to be arrogant about what he's done and what others on the team have yet to do. Uh, but he's all in. I think he loves playing with Adams and McKenney and the rest of those guys uh, uh, that, he's been, that he's known for a long time. And uh, so I, I like his approach to, to the U.S. men's national team. I do too. I think he puts his, he wears his heart on his sleeve and he's, he's definitely will speak his, you know, his mind and speak from his heart uh, much like his, his his uh, 
Bob Lilly, who coached the Riverhounds, uh, his godfather, um, you know, just interesting, like just always there for a good quote too. That's for sure. Um, but interesting, you know, you talk about speaking honestly. I, I want to go backward a little bit. I don't like to go too far back, but Jurgen Klinsmann, I think of all the of all the people that have been in a, a position of, of make a, a difference with the U.S. soccer program. I think more than anybody else certainly spoke his mind and it rattled a lot of feathers, but you know, it just, I, he was one of the few times I haven't covered a lot of us men's national team, but I was able to go to a couple of games in Columbus and I did a few press conferences and I, I know he just, just was very honest about how he felt about things. And I, I think it really did rattle some feathers. Don't you think? Yeah. And, and some of what he said was wrong too. I mean, <laughs> he like uh, when, when in the period when Clint Dempsey and, and, uh, and Brad, Michael Bradley and, and Josie Altator were coming back to the United States, uh, having really made a nice effort of it in Europe, uh, especially mm-hmm. uh, Michael and, and Clint, uh, Josie had some great times in Holland, but not, not as great in, in England. Um, but they all sort of took their best shot. And now MLS is saying, hey, we're going to pay you a ton of money. That's basically life changing for you. Uh, we'll pay you basically five times what you're making now. And it's and you don't have to play on the live tour. You get to play in Major League Soccer and spread the gospel of your sport in your home country. And he was critical of that. And I, I didn't think that was reasonable. I didn't think that was fair for him to expect those guys uh, to, to, to not, uh, to not take that opportunity. And I also don't think it was reasonable for him to expect them to decline. And he was wrong because when he said that was prior to Clint Dempsey's performance in the 2016 Copa America, uh, which was played here in the U S and the U S was a part of that. He was magnificent in that tournament, although he had been dragged himself down by playing in Seattle and MLS. So, I, I, you know, I mean, Michael Bradley, yeah, I mean, Michael Bradley played some of the best soccer of his career mm-hmm. after he went to Toronto. Now he, he declined fairly quickly after he hit a certain right. mileage on the odometer, but, um, but he was still really gifted and really accomplished and really talented and really helpful to the team. Uh, he played the great game down in Mexico and qualifying uh, where the U S got a draw in the, in the 2018 cycle. Uh, he did some really good things. He just couldn't overcome the fact that the team wasn't talented enough. And that was, they were just going through such a transitional period. I think there was such a gap in the level of talent between the older group and, you know, Polisic's age group. There was nothing yes. in between. There was, yes. there wasn't a whole lot there. And so the older guys were trying to pull up, you know, trying to keep things going at their level, but they just weren't at that same level anymore. And, I mean, DeMarcus Beasley was part of that group. I mean, I think he was way past, you know, but he was still, they had no choice but to put him, roll him out on, out on the wing. And, you know, it, it was what it was. And, you know, sometimes those tough lessons, uh, those dealing with those tough circumstances allowed, finally allowed them to build things back up. But, um, Another it allows me to segue into another thing. You just covered uh, at least you know keeping close tabs on the U.S. women's national team, and again they they lost in the Olympics last year. Coming you know they had a very successful 2019 Olympic I mean uh, World Cup, their fourth victory, and 
I feel like it's a it's a period of transition. And the way you, what you wrote about recently, um, as they beat Canada, you know, I, I guess only three players in some polls and six maybe in others and land uh, U.S. players landed in the top fifty uh, players. You know, player top fifty player lists, and yet they kind of went to this Concacaf uh, championship with a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, I, I, it was the Guardian who had three U.S. players in the top 50 and right. ESPN that had six. And I think I don't know that there were any top tens uh, on, on either list. Cat um, uh, Macario might have been, uh, uh, but I'm not sure of that. Um, but she uh, obviously was absent from the CONCACAF championship because she's injured, uh, hopefully comes back uh, in a reasonable period of time. She, if you know, on a normal uh, ACL recovery, she would be available uh, for the next summer's World Cup uh, with several months to, to spare. Uh, but those of us who follow the Steelers know that uh, coming back from an ACL isn't always easy. Just ask Devin Bush. Right. Um, uh, so we'll see how she does coming back. Uh, but one of the fascinating things to me, people talk a lot about this transition and yeah, okay, so uh, Tobin Heath isn't going to be a starter probably anymore. Um, and uh, and obviously Megan Rapinoe is not going to be a starter anymore. And Carl Carly Lloyd retired. But they're, one of the main reasons this team was as young as it was going to the CONCACAF uh, championship was two players were out because they were either still pregnant or had, or had just recently had a child. Uh, and they were, you know, very important players. Uh, Julie Ertz, uh, I believe, is still pregnant. Crystal Dunn just had her child, I think, in May. Uh, there were multiple players. Sam Mewis was injured. Abby Dahlkamper was injured. Uh, Kristen Press was injured, although Vladko Andonovsky said he probably wouldn't have chosen her anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but still another player that was unavailable to them. They had six players who, at least six players, who would have been competing for starting spots on this team who weren't available to them. And so then you bring in a lot of new players uh, who are relatively young. Sophia Smith, only 20 years old, uh, had some of, I mean, really, Sophia Smith's goal against Jamaica, the first goal, mm -hmm. was maybe the best goal I've ever seen scored by a U.S. women's national team player. Flips it up over her own shoulder with her mm -hmm. right foot uh, and then stabs it uh, on the, with the outside of her boot. Uh, to get it past the goalkeeper. It was just an absolute work of art. I don't know that you're going to see anybody in any uh, level in male, female, uh, uh, this year's World Cup, Champions League or whatever, that scores a better goal than that. Uh, it was, it, it, she's really gifted. She's still got a ways to go. Mm -hmm. uh, Mal Pugh, uh, another player with great talent. They, they formed a front line with uh, Alex Morgan because of Macario's injury. Uh, and also because Alex is on is in fantastic form right now. Uh, so they, they you saw a lot of players there. Then you saw in the midfield some players who've been there before, uh, who, who were part of the World Cup team in 2019, Lindsay Horan uh, and Rose Lavelle. So uh, and then in the, in the back line, uh, they went they tried to go younger. Emily Fox on the left side did some really nice things. Uh, Sophia Huerta on the right side really struggled against Canada. Uh, and then in the middle, uh, you had, you still had the uh, one 37 year old uh, who doesn't seem to like she's ever going to retire. Uh, and then you had a lot of cook uh, with, uh, with Germa, another player that showed a lot 
So you got a chance to see all these players in high level competition. I asked Lotko uh, about that after the, after the semifinal game about what it was like to see them in their first elimination game. The, 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 a lot of those players had never played in a, in a tournament in a real elimination game, not to, you know, you don't get eliminated from the, she believes cup, you know, right. you just play. Uh, right. So this was, we lose this game. We're done. They'd never played like that before. And they responded really well to it the first time around. And I thought responded even better when it was, win the championship or you got to go to a two leg qualifier for the Olympics uh, a year from now. So I thought they responded really well. So now you've got all these players who have had that experience and who have that talent in a lot of cases added to the half dozen that still are good enough and have that experience. So I think that in a lot of ways, this, this opportunity to play in this championship has deepened the rotation, the, the availability for Vlatko to the point where he's going to have, yeah. if everything goes well and everybody's healthy next summer, really different, difficult choices to make. Not to, not for the roster so much, right? Uh, but for the lineup, the, yeah. who you're sending out there when you've got players who've won the World Cup, but my goodness, this other player's really talented and she's now got experience. I think he's going to have some tough choices to make. But he, I, I think he has a, he, he comes into it a little bit different than say Jill Ellis, you know, where it's felt like in 2019, although they, they were successful, it, it was definitely some leaning towards playing the, and, and I think there was pressure in the Olympics as well to p- definitely play some players kind of on their last, last hurrah type situations. Um, so that's why I think this, if it can be handled really well, we've seen it before with other nations, not so much, well, with other nations, I think there's just that, you see, you see how it is in, at the World Cup level. Uh, you know, maybe we see it more on the men's side. Germany, you know, um, Italy, especially the, the real successful nations. Like, it's the next man up. I mean, you, you could be – there's been very few exceptions, uh, you know, the elite players, but very few exceptions. Uh, it, I think Klinsman tried to do that here, and he made a mistake with Landon Donovan. Like, I think they needed Landon Donovan on that team in 2014. Yeah, I mean, that, that that was a significant mistake. And I was just looking over the roster the other day. And, you know, a lot of people blamed Julian Green for his absence. But I think it was more – I always thought at the time, and I still think it, that Brad Davis um, did not need to be on that team. Right. Uh, they, there, he no, Nothing against him. He had a nice MLS career, but that's what he was. He was a nice, you know, good – he was never a great, great player in MLS. He was, may, may have made some all-star games and such, but – was never a superstar it just that was that was not done for any other reason than Klinsman wanted to make a statement to Landon uh, or about Landon or about uh, that idea of playing your soccer in MLS rather than over in Europe um it, it's ironic that he took an MLS uh, lifer uh, who had no other options basically uh, mm-hmm. in his place uh, but that that was a significant mistake I don't think we'll see that no. with Lotto next year no. Um, I, I, I think that I think he will still take Megan Rapino as long as she's healthy and in full, you know, in shape and all that. I think he'll take her because she's accepted. You clearly accepted her role as, OK, maybe a late sub if they need some free kicks. Um, otherwise, I'm out there to be a leader and be a, a voice and be someone who, you know, maybe a, in, a, in a rough spot takes the attention to herself 
and away from some of the other players. I, she will do that. She, she, she's an excellent lightning rod. She knows when to do that. Uh, she doesn't step out of bounds in that regard. She does use the pulpit to advance her ideas, yep. but she knows how to do it. And, and so mm-hmm. they'll take her for that reason. Uh, and like I said, she did not enter that championship game against Canada because they got the goal around the 76th minute. So at that point, they don't need her. And they didn't put her out there just ceremonially. They put her they, they did in some other games because they were still looking for uh, opportunities for goals, that sort of thing, to, to keep her a part of the team uh, because she would make smart decisions with the ball. Uh, but I, they're not going to put her out there where her relative lack of speed is going to be a problem. And against Canada, uh, that would have been. Absolutely. I, I think she, she knows her, I think she does know her place. I, I, I appreciate that. I think the U S team will have a lot, like you said, the depth and the options and just managing it appropriately, I think will be, will be, will be fascinating to see how, how that, how that goes. But um, so you've covered both U S and men's and women in terms of interviews and people you've gotten to know, I, I've had just a touch of both. Um, but for, I'd love to hear your perspective, like who are the best interviews, uh, some of your best experiences uh, in terms of covering both sides. Uh, the women's team is, is tremendous to, to deal with uh, the opportunities that you get to talk to them um, in advance of 2014. My best experience was, or 2015, I should say, my, my best experience was that uh, I, I got a chance to speak to um to Carly Lloyd by phone. Um, that was in advance of her break. You know, she'd already had some yeah. huge moments, but I wrote an article about how she was the, maybe the most underrated U S player in, in, in their glorious history. And then she went out and just blew the doors <laughs> off the tournament. So that was, that was a big moment for me as a soccer writer, uh, as a, as a, uh, dabbling soccer writer, to, to get that uh, to get that out there, I talked to Becky Sauerbrunn a couple of times, including that summer, um, and she's just amazing. She's just a wonderful woman, and and so easy to talk to. Uh, Megan Rapino, uh, I haven't had as much time with her, more mixed zone type time, but always really bright. And you know, another uh, in advance of 2019, I went to St. Louis. It was one of their last friendlies before they left for France. And, and I, and I got Carly alone and I asked her about being a super sub and I, in all the time, and she didn't get mad, but like her eyes, like burned a hole in my face. <laughs> she was like, no, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not a super sub. I am trying to be a starter. Now she wasn't beating out she Alex. The end, though. She was she not really like, was. she would never give up that idea that she yeah. was still a starter. Right. That was just how she was. So right. uh, she's been wonderful. Uh, you know, the men, uh, I, I really like Greg Berhalter dealing with him. I've always thought uh, it, for as long as I followed this, that one of the jobs of the U S men's national team coach is to spread the gospel, so to speak. Yeah. And I think it's become a little less important uh, over that time, but not, but still important. And I, I thought that was something that Bob Bradley never really got. Uh, Jurgen, I think, I think Jurgen just wanted to spread his gospel, uh, <laughs> not necessarily the gospel of the game. But Greg is a very patient. Uh, right. he, he's always got great answers for your questions. Uh, he's always engaging uh, with everybody he speaks to. Uh, really, 
uh, highly uh, recommend uh, him as, as in that role. And I, you know, and I, I think he's underrated as a coach. John, I was, I, I think I was, I, I take credit for this one too. Um, one of my friends who covers soccer, who used to cover soccer, now she's an editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Andrea Canales, who used to write soccer for ESPN. Yeah. And she, in 2015, I think, wrote a tweet about the different MLS coaches who might make a good successor to Jurgen. And I said, and I responded to her and I said, watch out for Greg Burhalter. Cause, cause living in Cincinnati, I used to go to a bunch of crew games and I sort of started following them as sort of my MLS team. Cause they were the only team close. And I used to go there at least once a year. And I, and so I watched pretty much all their games and I thought that he had really interesting and inventive ideas and his teams were really organized and they seemed to respond to him well. And I said, watch out for him. I think he's got that ability. Now, I know a lot of people think it was this nepotism thing and all that, but I'm telling you that there's a spark there. And I think you can see it now. He's really good at building culture. Uh, he's really good at recruiting because of his success in building culture. Uh, young players want to be a part of that team. They want to be, you know, Eunice Musso wanted to be a part of that team. Uh, Malik Tillman wanted to be a part of that team. Uh, they, they had some, those guys had other options. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Jesus Ferreira is another one who, who could have gone uh, a yeah. different way. Uh, and so that he's done really well with that. And so I, I really think that, uh, you know, do I, do I think he's the greatest tactician in the history of the sport? You know, I, I don't. Uh, I, I think that's not a controversial statement. Uh, he might, but is he good enough at tactics uh, when you build the right cu culture and you put the people in the right places and you get them to understand their roles? And I think he does those things as well as anybody. I mean, maybe not Pep level or Klinsman level, but I mean, he does it well as anybody who's a really good soccer coach. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I've said a few uh, con conference calls, you know, phone um, interviews where when he was with Columbus, they did have a partnership affiliation with the, the Riverhounds. So there was some of that. And that obviously is obviously the, the most famous loan to the Riverhounds was Zach Steffen, who uh, now is another segue. Maybe my last real question here. Um, you've got this really interesting, you know, goalkeeper who's going to rise to the surface and be the U.S keeper um so between stefan's stefan and um matt turner really and just found out i uh, just recently you know stefan uh is 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 was loaned out to middlesbrough in the championship and of course turner's going to be this this the second um probably well i mean he's going to fight for playing time for arsenal so how do you think that plays out well i greg has always had a, a, you know an affinity for zach uh they played, you know, they, they were together three, four years in Columbus. Zach did some really terrific things for him. They made MLS Cup final one year. Uh, they made the semifinals uh, and lost close to Toronto, uh, I think, in 2018. Uh, they, they, so they have that connection to one another. So I think he'd like it to be Zach. And when you have a circumstance where Zach's playing and Matt probably isn't, uh, unless someone gets hurt, uh, I, I think it favors Zach. Now he's got to play well at Middlesbrough. Yeah. He's got to, he's got to do a good job. Uh, if he's struggling, uh, then, then you have to go in the other direction. It, the irony of course, is that the reasoning 
is supposedly that he's better with his feet. Uh, that And they obviously want to play out of the back a lot of the time. And, of course, the last time Zach played in the FA Cup, uh, uh, he gave up a goal where he flubbed one at, with, at, with his feet. And, and uh, Sadio Mane was able to go in and steal it from him right at the goal line. So, yeah, I, I, it does raise questions about whether that's a good enough reason if Turner's playing better. But remember, I mean, the last time Matt played – uh, for the U.S. was in June, and then the the World Cup starts November 21st. So it'll, that's five months, five and a half months uh, for for him to be away from. Now they'll have two games uh, at least in September, but uh, I don't know if I, 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 with him not playing, I don't know if that's enough opportunity for him to win the job. If if Zach gets off to a reasonable start right. with Middlesbrough, he'll start the games uh, in the fall in Europe. I, mm-hmm. I have very little doubt. And if he doesn't flub that, uh, then he'll get the job for Qatar, for Qatar, excuse me. Uh, he'll, I think that's just everything is pointing his way. And that's why it was really smart uh, for him to, to get the Middlesbrough thing. And I think it was really smart for Man, Man City to say, yeah, sure. I mean, because this way he gets the opportunity to right. be in that pole position uh, and he becomes more valuable to them if he is a World Cup starter. Uh, than he is as someone who was on the bench behind Arsenal's backup. I I completely agree, and it was I thought it was very good news for U.S. Uh, fans and for the U.S. team uh, to see the way that kind of worked itself out for Zach. And uh, obviously, here in Pittsburgh, we're we're definitely rooting for him because every time you know it, there's he's featured, it's like Pittsburgh Riverhounds. You know, he had a, a brief stint in Pittsburgh, so. Uh, it was very small, but every once in a while when it gets mentioned, uh, definitely some of the soccer fans here get excited about that. So, hey, we got to take what we can get, right? Hey, he's a black and gold guy, man. He spent yeah. he spent more than half right. his career wearing black and gold. So, right. Uh, right. I mean, that's uh, you got to go with that. Absolutely. All right, Mike, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, we we got to do this again, uh, maybe closer to the World Cup. Uh, I really appreciate um you know, your insights and, and just your passion for the game. I mean, you bring it to the table and, and I, I really appreciate that. Oh, John, thank you for having me. It's my honor uh, to join you. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be delighted to do it in the fall again. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun talking to you and, and, and getting a chance to, to meet you through Zoom. Absolutely. And, and I add to passion. I add knowledge and now experience because just really appreciate hearing everything you had to say. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, Mike DeCourcy. The sporting news, we will definitely be following U.S. men's and national uh, women's national team coverage. Uh, it's going to really heat up, especially as the year moves forward.